There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 52, Payday. The following morning, I met Freddie Carno Jr. and Rafe Luscombe outside the Lone Star studio and led them past the gatemen who might otherwise have dumped them on the sidewalk. As they marvelled at the activity on the lot, the carpenters building yet another piece of scenery for some new gag Charlie had devised, Alf Reeves bustled over to envelop them in his arms, followed by the usually lugubrious Albert Austin, flushed and beaming for once, and Eric Campbell. Then the cry came, "'He's here!' and all present quickly assembled into the welcoming lines, standing to attention. "'What's happening?' Freddy asked. "'You'll enjoy this,' I said, ushering the two visitors into formation alongside everyone else. Torechi Kono eased the locomobile sleekly onto the lot, and Harrington, the valet, popped out like a jack-in-the-box to get the door for his master. Without glancing at any of us, Chaplin stepped out in his shiny little shoes and great black coat and swept importantly into the office building. Once he was gone, the crowd dissolved in all directions, leaving just the ex-Carno mob behind. "'He's like a king,' Luscombe marvelled. "'Come on,' I said. "'I'll take you to see him.' "'Well, perhaps we should wait,' Luscombe said anxiously. "'I mean, if he's busy.' "'Come along,' I said. "'You've come all this way, haven't you?' Freddy and Rafe followed me into the reception, and I made straight for Charlie's inner sanctum. "'Oh, hey!' the young receptionist cried out. "'He doesn't want to see anyone.' "'He'll see us,' I said, soothingly, as if to a frightened bird. "'Then I gave one sharp tap on the door and walked in. "'Charlie was just divesting himself of his coat, "'which he slung across the writing table. "'It creaked alarmingly, and I thought it couldn't be long "'before it gave up the ghost. "'Arthur,' he said, "'I'm sorry, I have rather a lot to do. "'Visitors to see you,' I said. "'I knew you wouldn't want them to wait.' "'Rafe Luscombe lurched in then, "'trying to walk as smartly as he could "'with his crutch under one armpit.' "'You remember my friend Rafe Luscombe, who was a super in the football match for a time?' Charlie was transfixed by the crutch, the limp, and the vacant sleeve. "'I... Uh, of course, yes. Goodness me! What a pleasure to see you again. How do you do?' Behind the dumbstruck Luscombe, Freddie Carno Jr. hove into view then. Charlie and I had spoken sorrowfully of our friend's killed-in-action report, so his reaction was almost as overwhelmed as mine had been. He reached forward and grasped Fred by both of his upper arms, squeezing hard. "'See? What did I tell you?' Freddy said to me then. "'Hello, Charlie. Long time no see.' "'I'm delighted, my dear fellow. I can't tell you. So it was untrue.' "'It was. Praise be.' Luscombe found his tongue. "'I must say, it, it, it's amazing to find you all here, like Fred Carno's army,' he said. Chaplin smiled benignly, but was clearly puzzled. "'They sing this song, The Boys at the Front,' Freddy explained, looking to Luscombe for accompaniment, which was enthusiastically forthcoming. "'We are Fred Carno's army. A jolly lot are we. Fred Carno is our captain. Charlie Chaplin, ROC.' Charlie gave a little gasp, and the two lads launched into the rest of the verse. "'And when we get to Berlin, the Kaiser, he will say, "'Hoch, hoch, mein Gott, what a jolly fine lot! 
are the boys of Company A. Charlie smiled and applauded enthusiastically. Well, well, he said. Marvellous. You've heard about the mechanised transports, tanks they're called, that roll over the trenches. I, I think I have. They're named after Carnot sketches. No, really? I promise you. One is Jailbird, another is Early Bird, and I saw a Mumming Bird too. Incredible, incredible, what a thing. Well, I said, if you'll excuse me, I think I must leave you to it. The chaps wish to speak to you, and I heard all their stories yesterday. And besides, it doesn't really concern me, truth to tell. Thank you, Arthur, Charlie said, and I withdrew. Two and a half hours later, I was outside on the lot waiting for the boys to reappear when Terecho Kono drew the sports car up again outside the office block. Shortly after this, Charlie appeared and said to his Japanese driver, Please take my honoured guests anywhere they would like to go. And Kono nodded once. Freddie and Rafe came out, a little subdued, but looking content, and made their way over to the car. I'll see you this evening, I said as I strolled by. Same place. Splendid, Luscombe cried, and the motor slid towards the main gate. Charlie stood watching them go, and then brushed away a tear. That was extraordinary, he said. Emotional. Indeed, I replied, and we stood in contemplative silence together for a moment. Well, he said then, I really must... I just need a quick word, I said. Shall we go inside? Chaplin wasn't particularly keen, but I led the way back to his office, and he acquiesced. What's this about? he said, taking a seat and lighting up a cigarette. I wanted to thank you for your hospitality, I said. I shall be leaving shortly. Ah, Charlie said. We should be sorry to see you go. Alf, especially. Yes, well, I said. As you know, I've been engaged in work for the government in respect of the Liberty Bond Drive and the draft. That's right, and I regret that I'm unable to spare the time to leave California and drum up support for you. But I know that you're anxious, I said, then paused. Charlie frowned. Anxious? Anxious to help, in any way you can, hence the use of your bungalow these past weeks. You're welcome, I'm sure. You may consider me suitably buttered up. Well, perhaps, but it wasn't just that. There's the history between us, naturally. Yes, which has not always been as cordial as it might, has it? Oh, really? There's no need to go dredging up your old paranoia. Chaplinoia, I said. What? That's what the newspapers are calling people's unnatural fascination with you. Chaplinoia, or chaplinitis. Well, I can't very well help that nonsense, now can I? I guess not, I said. But Chaplinoia or not, the fact remains, you and I have been rivals for many years. Since we first met, in fact. Back in the Carno days, when you and Sid contrived to cheat your way past me to become number one of the football match company. Water under a very small old bridge, Chaplin scoffed. And then when you had me and Stan sacked from the American company and thrown into penury. Did I do that? You did. And then there are the many occasions you tried to steal Tilly away from me, and then discarded her like a cheap streetwalker when she fell pregnant. Ah, Stan told you I borrowed money from him, I suppose. Pregnant with my son, I went on. Yours? Chaplin's eyebrows shot up. That's right. Are you sure? he said slyly. Quite certain, thank you. Then let us not forget the times you hindered Stan, especially after you saw how funny it was when he took your place in New York that time. Hindered Stan? Charlie feigned ignorance. Yes, you led him to believe you would help him into movies, which was just a ruse to stymie him. 
I did try to bring some people to your show. Really, I did, Charlie said. It just wasn't possible in the time. Yeah, yeah, I said impatiently. And finally we come to your attempt to have me arrested after Sid spotted me in Jacksonville. Arrested for shooting someone dressed up as me, you mean? You can hardly be surprised that Sid noticed that. That sort of thing does tend to make a man anxious, if you like. But he didn't tell me until after he'd done it. Charlie's eyes flicked to the door then, wondering how this conversation might end. And not only that, you ensured that the whole movie business in Jacksonville was destroyed by leaving that bumptious twit Bowden a merry dance. Oh, we never had any intention of moving there. We only said that we might as a ploy to get more money out of First National. He was being infuriatingly reasonable, just as he was when I was about to give him my shits-for-a-shit tobacco tin leaving present back in Kansas City. I almost wavered, but the wind was in my sails now. Well, I don't know that that is entirely honest, I can't really tell, but I have to tell you that I have not been completely candid with you either. Chaplin sat silently, regarding me with his violet eyes, his nervousness betrayed by his eloquent body, one finger tapping out a rat-a-tat rhythm on his rickety writing table. You see, while I am engaged in government business, the department I am engaged by is principally interested in uncovering proof that you have shirked your responsibility with respect to the war effort. Oh, not this white feather nonsense, Chaplin expostulated. I have a contract which explicitly forbids me. That contract would not be sufficient to exempt you from active service, I said. It only muddies the water. To get out of the army, you would need a letter like this one. I pulled the Binks letter from my jacket pocket, opened it out, and turned it to face him. Chaplin looked at it coldly, trying to remain calm. Where did you get that? Oh, the day the offices were unlocked. Well, there's nothing untoward about that. What if you were required to produce this Binks, I said, this Dr. Archibald Binks, with his Fred Carnot name? He doesn't seem to work at the hospital named here. Oh, has he moved on? If he has, and you can track him down, perhaps he will be able to explain why his signature so closely resembles that of your brother Sidney. Chaplin's face hardened. What do you want? What do I want? Do you propose to buy your way out of this little spot of bother? What would be an appropriate amount, do you suppose, for allowing your glittering career to continue without making you into a figure of contempt and derision the world over? How much would you be willing to pay to keep your business manager out of jail for fraudulent misrepresentation? I don't know, Chaplin said, his voice flat. Why don't you tell me? It doesn't matter, though, does it? Because whatever amount you stumped up to get past this, you would be able to get from your next contract in any case. Chaplin sat very still. No, that's not going to wash, I'm afraid. Not because I don't want or need your money, but because when I do what I have to do next, it can't be for money. Chaplin frowned slightly, puzzled. I was within an ace of doing it, you know, I said. The cable office was shut or I would have. Would have what? Cabled a message to the man who desperately wants this letter, desperately wants to bring you down, to see you ruined. But then I met Freddy and Rafe, and they told me how much your work, your presence, your films have meant to the men who have stepped forward to serve their country. Unlike you yourself, of course, he sneered. That's true, I said, with a grin. I have taken advantage of the accident of being over here when the whole brouhaha began, as many have, which is why I could not, in all conscience, look a soldier in the eye if I were to be responsible for depriving the world of... Well, of you. What do you mean? Freddy and Rafe came all this way to thank you for making that hell on earth just a little more tolerable. That means something, doesn't it? 
even though I know you've only been serving yourself, your own vanity, your own legend, and you don't have a selfless bone in your body, nonetheless it means something to people who have given more than I can begin to comprehend, something important. So, much as I wanted to do it, I couldn't send that wire. I see. I sent a different one, saying that I'd found nothing, and there was nothing to find. Chaplin nodded slowly. But before I go... I wanted you to know that everything you have, everything you retain, all this, all your future successes, everything you achieve from now on, you owe it all to me. Uh-huh. And in order that my sacrifice, the sacrifice of my own revenge, that is, should not be in vain, I have some advice for you. Well, I'm sure I am all ears, Chaplin said, actually brightening a little now that he sensed he was going to get away with it. First of all, there is a man out there, a powerful young man, the man who sent me after you. His name, I checked the letter of authority that I'd been given, just to be sure, is John Edgar Hoover. And he means to shame you as a slacker, to make an example of you, because you're the most famous man in the world, and you've not signed up to fight for his country. You need to do whatever you can to forestall him. So do the Liberty Bond drives. Make time. Carve the space in your schedule to travel the country. Not for me. I don't actually give a damn. But for yourself. Make a film about the war, why don't you? Secondly, get a proper doctor to certify you properly unfit to fight. Not this arrogant nonsense. I flapped the Binks letter at him. However did you think this would stand? But Sid. Sid is an idiot. And lastly, do this for me. Leave Stan alone. Don't say you'll help him. Don't take him under your wing. Just let him be. He'll be better off standing on his own two feet without your poisonous presence. And one day, who knows, with a fair crack at it, maybe he'll even be as famous and well-loved as you inexplicably are. Chaplin chuckled mirthlessly at that. What will you do? Oh, I'll find somewhere to hole up. It took them long enough to find me last time. Good luck. I appreciate I'm not doing it for you, I snapped. A friend once did me a good turn, and all he asked for as payback was that if one day I found myself in a position to help someone less fortunate than myself, I should do it. I can hardly conceive of more deserving cases than the men at the front, can you? I'm doing it for Freddy, and Rafe, and all the other lads like them. Your work has a powerful effect on morale, apparently. God knows I can't see it myself. Just looks like arse-kicking to me. But according to them, if it was suddenly taken away, we might actually lose the damned war. At the door... I turned back to look at him, and he was still sitting there, digesting things, thinking, no doubt, of the great responsibility he'd just learned that he bore, which wasn't going to help with his perfectionism one bit. Oh, I said, and if you find yourself needing a new writing desk in the near future, I should send the bill to Mr. Thomas Megan. What? What do you say? Minutes later, I was striding out of the Lone Star Studios with my bag in hand, never to return. I smiled to myself as I remembered Chaplin's pop-eyed reaction to my last rejoinder. And then everything went bright, and suddenly black. Black as the deepest pit of hell. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Chapter 53. Shoulder Arms. Fritz is coming, the sergeant major shouted. This is his big push. He means to drive right through us and cut us off from the channel, wrap this whole bloody war up before the Americans get here. Well, we're not going to let him, are we? No, sir. I can't hear you. No, sir. You blokes are going into Relief Company D and they've taken a bit of a beating over the last few days. Fritz has been pretty lively with his whiz-bangs and his footballs and we've got a real job on our hands holding this part of the line. But if we break, God help us all. I knew better than to look around to see how my fellow Tommies were taking this, but I could tell that the atmosphere was tense, very tense, and most of the men in the barn were clenching their backsides, as I was. I had arrived in France two months before, still reeling from the abrupt end of my American sojourn. The moment I stepped outside the Lone Star Studios onto Lillian Avenue, I was jumped, sandbagged, or possibly cold-cocked, or even blackjacked, and thrown into the back of a darkened delivery van of some sort. I didn't know too much about things then, but as my journey continued by train back across the continent to the east coast, my wits gradually cleared. I was accompanied by two brawny sons of toil in dark suits, neither of whom were particularly chatty, but I confirmed by inches over the next few days that they were underlings of friend Hoover. Clearly John was deeply disappointed by my efforts on his behalf, and was making good on his promise to evict me from the land of the free, for which it seemed I no longer qualified. I was kept under very close arrest as I was led onto a ship at the docks at New York, and I spent the entire crossing locked in a small cabin, the door of which only ever opened to admit an orderly with my meals on a tray, or else the same guy coming back for the tray later. I was not even permitted to walk on the deck, which seemed a bit much. After all, I could hardly have made a run for it, could I? I occupied my time, roughly half and half, with fretting about submarines and making plans to bolt as soon as we docked in Southampton. But in the event, the gangway was no sooner in place than two big military police red caps from the Black Watch, enormous actually, and wearing kilts, which somehow made them even more terrifying, were stomping aboard in double-quick time to take charge of me. I'm not sure how Hoover achieved all this, but clearly he was a resourceful and influential young man. Before I knew what was what, I was enlisted in the 9th Battalion of the Royal Sussex, which mysteriously seemed to be stocked mainly with Lancastrians from Burnley and Colne, and was dispatched to a training camp in Surrey. No point running away by then. I'd have been shot for desertion. Once I'd learned to tell one end of a rifle from the other, how to stick a bayonet into a scarecrow, and how to get a fitful night's sleep in a bell tent, it was straight to France, to the town of Bethune, some fifty-odd miles from Calais. After some of the ruined villages we'd passed through on the long, slow truck ride down, Bethune seemed almost miraculously unscathed as we tramped the last few miles in the hot sun with heavy packs on our backs. The town was only six miles or so from the front trenches as the crow flies, if any crow should care to risk it, and yet the shops were doing a roaring trade. Chemists offering auto-strop razors, stationers tempting us with Tommy's writing pads, and tailors flaunting new British officers' uniforms in their show windows, not to mention a tea shop serving English tea and scones that looked as though it had been transported brick by brick from the seafront at Eastbourne. 
We marched through the town towards the sound of the artillery, unsure whether it was ours or theirs. As we passed along the main street of what had once been a village, a shell exploded some thirty yards ahead. All of us dived for the side of the road, throwing ourselves flat, but when we ventured a peek, we saw the local women standing in their doorways, remarkably unimpressed, and children playing in the street, and we shamefacedly brushed ourselves down and carried on. Our billet was a farm on the way from the town to the lines. Thirty men kipped in a big barn, while our officers got to sleep in the main farm building, which was still intact, although the sandbags where the windows once were suggested that it was not altogether invulnerable. Turkeys, chickens, dogs, a donkey, and two goats kept us company, and to a man we were thinking, this isn't too bad, especially when we were greeted with a free issue of Glory Boys cigarettes, two packets each. The first days were taken up with work parties, always work parties. We would climb onto a truck marked with some mysterious painted insignia, a red shell, a green shamrock, and drive to a bombed-out village where we would scavenge sandbags full of bricks which would be used to build shelters for horses or some such. Our officers, supervising us, were difficult to take seriously. Everything seemed to be either a good show or a bad show. When work was done for the day, however, we would be allowed to stroll up the chalk downs behind for a smoke, and if you could ignore the constant sound of the guns, which of course you couldn't, you might have been on holiday. We laid on our backs in the late sunshine and watched the strange black crosses in the sky, the aircraft, the fockers of the Luftstreit Kräfte, and our sop with camels. They didn't look like the flying death of that aviator Glenn Martin's imagination, swinging lazily around one another, with occasional puffs of smoke from ground artillery bursting around them. I think once I even saw the dry-decker of the notorious Red Baron heading towards Amiens. Our battalion was quickly in the firing line, which meant we spent life in a constant alternation between our billets and the trenches, six days on the farm and then four days in. These trenches were, naturally, running parallel to the German lines just a hundred yards or so away. There was a front trench, and behind that, support trenches, all linked by communication trenches running perpendicular. The trenches were originally dug by the French, but there'd been so much patching up and repair work done, I doubt any of those Frenchies would have recognised them if any were still with us. To help us find our way around, these trenches were given names, such as Old Kent Road, Watling Street... Trafalgar Square, an open command area, Canterbury Avenue, Rue Albert, a hangover from the original French occupants, and then, when imagination or nostalgia failed completely, 76th Street, 78th Street. They should have called one the Thames, the amount of water there was in it, splashing over the duckboards. We quickly learned the way of life in the trenches, perching on the fire step, waiting for something to happen, passing awkwardly in the cramped and crowded passageways, like strap hangers on the tube. We learnt never to march around a corner without checking first. One time I blithely headed into a communication trench, only to find that a rocket grenade had brought down the front parapet of the trench in front of me, and I was staring straight at the enemy across a rather narrow stretch of no-man's land. Fritz was every bit as startled as I was, so I managed to scuttle back the way I'd come before he slung his rifle, thankfully. We learned that a sign reading this trench patrolled only meant that a Bosch mine was suspected in the area, and we patrolled it damn quickly, I can tell you. Which reminds me, if you came around a corner and saw a man walking towards you, white from head to foot, with a canary in a cage held before him at arm's length, this was not a ghost. It was a miner, fresh from digging a chamber out of the local chalky ground. Once darkness fell, the work parties could begin, 
rebuilding trench walls and fire steps that had been damaged, replacing the duckboards, or filling sandbags with white, chalky soil from the miners' dumps. One strange duty required a couple of us to crouch on the fire step and hold dummy heads, such as the one I'd made of my own head when performing the rummans from Rome with Stan in another life, it felt like, up above the parapet to try and tempt a German sniper to reveal himself. One mate of mine, Bob Young, held his too high and lost a finger. He was elated at first, thinking he'd be sent home, but unfortunately for him, it wasn't his trigger finger. There wasn't much sleep to be had in the front line. There would be the occasional lull, but then a barrage would begin again from one side or the other. You had to be up at 4am to clean your rifle for a 5am rifle inspection, and by 5.05 there would be mud all over it again. And the constant threat of sudden death kept you tightly strung, like the top string of a fiddle, always ready for a high-pitched scream. I saw a man in my company peer over the top and fall back with a bullet hole in his forehead. I saw another vaporised by a whiz-bang, while the bloke next to him stared amazed in mid-sentence, completely unhurt. Most bizarrely of all, I saw a sergeant-major sitting by a tent, well back from the front, a pipe in his mouth still smouldering, even though he was quite dead. There was not a mark on him, but a shell had passed so closely overhead that the sudden vacuum caused by its passage had quite suffocated him where he sat. After four days of sleepless tension, we would be rotated out again and return to our billets and work parties again, sometimes even able to stroll into town for an omelette and a beer at an estaminet, as if nothing were going on at all, if only you could ignore the noise of the damned guns. So that's how I ended up in that barn, having the wind put at me by a burly sergeant major. We'd all heard the fighting to the north up towards Hazebrook over the previous few days, the sound of the big German guns getting closer and closer, and like all my comrades I was seriously worried that this might just be, well, it. I reckon though without Charlie Chaplin, who was about to find one more way to stick his oar into my business. Just then a distracted looking gent with three pips on the shoulder of his uniform popped halfway in at the door and said, I say, any of you fellows know how to drive an automobile? Now, I was new to trench warfare, but even I knew that any driving that needed doing was going to be behind the lines, and not up at the sharp end where the shells and bullets were flying around, and in a split second, my brain, operating at a heightened level of self-preservation, had calculated that this was definitely something I should be volunteering for. "'Yes, sir,' I said, snapping to attention. "'Name? Dando, sir. "'All right, Dando, you're with me. Thank you, Sergeant Major. Carry on. "'Sir?' I had, of course, only once been behind the wheel of a vehicle when Terechi Kono was letting me drive Chaplin's limousine for fun, and I was going to need some good fortune to pass myself off as a driver of any kind. I followed the captain outside and tried to look confident as he climbed into the back of a mud-spattered staff car. I got in the front passenger seat, which was a good start. The steering wheel, alarmingly, was on the right side, where Terechi's had been on the left, so everything was reversed. I quickly shuffled myself across, as though this was how I always entered a motorcar that I was about to drive. Luckily, it had the same self-starter as Chaplin's motorcar, and so I got the engine going, which was when I discovered that the pedals were not reversed, but were actually the same way round as on my previous solitary driving adventure. I stalled the thing, apologised, restarted, stalled, apologised, and then bumped off down the lane with the merest hint of an exasperated tut from my passenger. Also, fortunately, we bumped past a line reading lorries six miles per hour. The road was so pitted one could hardly have gone much faster in any case. 
The slow traffic meant I barely had to shift gears at all, not one of my special skills, and before long I was reasonably confident that I could handle the machine well enough. My passenger, Captain Davis his name was, stared out of the window with his chin on his fist, frowning and distracted. I decided that it would be good to make myself useful to him, if only to avoid being sent back into the front line of trenches with the Germans about to make a big push, so I tried to engage him in cheery conversation. "'Cheer up, sir,' I said. "'It might never happen.' "'It has happened, Dando,' the captain said glumly. "'Why, sir, what's the matter?' "'I've been given an impossible task, that's what.' "'Can I help, sir?' I felt a slight cockney accent gave me a more optimistic tone, so I stuck with it. "'I have to arrange a divisional concert,' the captain explained. "'But it must not be just any old shindig with chaps volunteering to play the accordion and such. "'It must be a proper, professional-looking show. "'It seems Harry Lauder is coming to Artois and Picardy to play a series of concerts for the troops, "'bringing his own mini-piano to play, and command wish me to produce from thin air, "'right here in France, if you please, a supporting bill of the highest possible calibre. "'I tell you frankly, I have no idea where to begin.' I suppose I could try and put the word out, but of course then every Tom, Dick and Harry will step forward, claiming to be this or that, and I shall have absolutely no way of knowing who will do, and who is merely trying to get out of the fighting. My cogs were worrying at this, naturally. I, uh, have some experience in this area, sir, I said. Have you? Davis said wearily. Have you really? I have, sir. I worked for Fred Carner for many years, performing with and I gulped down my own unwillingness to play this card, but needs must. Charlie Chaplin, among others. You know Charlie Chaplin? I do, sir. As a matter of fact, I was at his studios in Los Angeles only a few months ago. Really? Captain Davis sat forward on the back seat, intrigued. What's he like? What's he like? I snorted. What's he like, sir? Davis insisted. Sorry, sir. Uh, Charlie is a, a complicated fellow. "'But you know him well?' "'I do, sir.' "'So could you, if the need arose, "'do Charlie Chaplin? "'Impersonate him, I mean?' "'Why not?' I thought. "'He's been impersonating me for years. "'But I said, oh, "'I think so. "'Yes, sir.' "'Well, this is most fortuitous. "'You know Mr Lauder is a good friend of Chaplin's. "'I'm not surprised, sir.' Marvellous, marvellous. "'Yes, I think this is most handy. "'All right. "'From now on, Dando, you are not merely my driver. "'Watch that tree there!' I was not, it appeared, sufficiently skilled to steer the vehicle and receive surprising developments via the rear-view mirror at the same time. You are also my assistant. Understood? Sir. Yes, sir. I asked around the soup kitchen and the estaminets, and one old trooper led me to the rumour of another, and another, until gradually I built up a not inconsiderable bill. I found a notable solo act renowned on both sides of the Atlantic, manning an observation sausage high above the trenches, looking out for fockers. I found a small but perfectly formed male voice choir amongst the lads of the Welsh regiment, just longing for a chance to sing for an audience. I even found a couple of ex-Carnos kicking their heels not far from where I was billeted, Harry Bunn and Bobby Sayers, who were delighted to get a pass out of sandbag duty. With them, I knocked together a sketch with a military setting that had, I freely admit, some strong similarities to the Nutty Burglars, except that now I was the one playing the chaplain part. In the meantime, Company C had been rotated into the front trenches and were getting, as promised, a fearful battering. I tried not to think about it or feel guilty for having been handed a pass of my own. 
Instead, I threw myself into arranging the divisional concert, taking responsibility for all the staging and arranging the few portable lights I was able to commandeer, leaving Captain Davis to sit at the back of the large hall, puffing away at a pipe full of golden flake with a contented half-smile, waiting to take all the credit from the up aboves. On the day the great Harry Lauder arrived in Bethune, Davis greeted him officially, but it was I who arranged for his mini-piano to be installed on the stage, and who talked him through the evening ahead. He looked tired, this wiry little Scot, but his eyes were bright, and he was a man on a mission. He had played many concerts on his trip through Picardy, sometimes as many as six a day, and often without any support, so he smiled gratefully when I told him that there were other acts to help share the burden on this particular occasion. Lauder had thrown himself into the war effort at home, devising a West End show with a cast of 300, positively demanding that the male members of the audience should leave the theatre and immediately join the fight for king and country. He established Harry Lauder's million-pound fund to help the war injured, and his efforts had redoubled when his only son, a captain, was killed at the Somme. The concert tour that he was embarked upon behind the lines had taken the shape of a pilgrimage to visit his son's grave at the military cemetery in Pozières, and he was now working his way back to Calais, one army camp at a time. I brought him an enamel mug of tea and some champion for his pipe, and we sat together on a low wall out the back of the hall. He nodded at my Charlie-in-the-army costume, and said, "'I see young Chaplin has stirred himself at last.' "'I beg your pardon, sir. He's finally seen the light and started contributing to the effort.' "'Has he now? Aye. Here, Luke.' Lauder reached into his knapsack and pulled out a Paris edition of the Daily Mail to point out a piece. The article was grudging, as Northcliffe's enmity for my erstwhile colleague still burned brightly, but it described Charlie's rousing appearances at Liberty Bond drives in many major American cities. One time he stood on the shoulders of Douglas Fairbanks to deliver an impassioned speech, and in Philadelphia he became so enthused that he fell clean off the stage into the lap of the Secretary for War and Mr. Franklin Roosevelt. Well, well. How about that, I thought. I handed the paper back to Lauder. I was very sorry to hear of your loss, I said. A shadow crossed the great man's features, and he suddenly looked older than his forty-seven years. A terrible thing to lose a son, he said softly. Do you have Burns yourself? A son, I said. I haven't seen him for a long while. Lauder nodded. I laid down on his grave, he said. That cold brown mound and I thought of all he had been, and all that he had meant to me. I remembered that wee laddie beginning to run around and talk to us, and thought of the friends we'd been, he and I. Such chums we were, always. He paused with a wan smile as the memories flooded over him, and I waited. And as I lay there, I tell you, all I wanted was to reach my arms down, down into that dark grave, and clasp my boy tightly to my breast and kiss him and I wanted to thank him for what he had done for his country, and for his mother, and for me. I had a lump in my throat at that, and was overcome with a desperate desire to see my own son again. Three years it had been, and more. The soldiers arrived in motor buses and packed the hall out three times that day. Each time Harry Lauder packed his grief away and bounced onto the stage with his kilt and his tam shanter and his crommock to sing his many well-known favourites. I Love a Lassie, Roaming in the Gloaming, and songs that had become standards during the war, such as Pack Up Your Troubles in Your Old Kit Bag. My turn as chaplain was very well received, if I say so myself. In adapting our old sketch, I'd made the chaplain character into a private, 
as he might have appeared had he ever signed up, with a too small tunic, baggy trousers, and an incongruous derby hat that I'd found on the head of a local cafe owner some days earlier, while the haul of swag he hoped to sneak off with was not jewellery, but a stack of tins of bully beef. I got a great cheer as soon as I appeared, which was his cheer, of course, but some of the laughs I got were mine, and it felt good to be on stage in front of a packed hall once again, exercising the power. During our third and last house, I was just getting into my stride, that million-dollar walk I had first devised for my stowaway turn, when I heard a stir in the audience, a disturbance in my hold over them. I glanced out over the officers with their polished boots in the front row of seats to the benches beyond. Someone was standing up. A nurse, a VAD, with the distinctive white nun-style headdress over a blue dress, and a red cross on her white apron. She stood, staring right at me, her mouth open with disbelief. I stopped in mid-step and peered right back at her. What was the matter? I wondered. The lights were right in my eyes, as I'd had to mount them on stands at the back of the hall rather than drilling into the beams overhead out of respect to the local residents. I shielded my eyes with my hand, but the nurse's face was in shadow. She reached up and slowly removed the headdress, then fiddled behind her head, suddenly releasing her hair to cascade down onto her shoulders, a shining waterfall of backlit golden ringlets that stopped my heart. All around her, men began to murmur, and some whistles echoed around the hall, but I barely heard them, because I knew, just as well as I knew anything, who this was, who was standing before me. It was like a miracle. Tilly. I forgot what I was supposed to be doing then. It didn't matter. It didn't matter at all. All that mattered was getting to her. I jumped down from the stage, causing Captain Davis to hurriedly withdraw his shiny toe-caps, and I pushed and stumbled on through the tangled undergrowth of khaki knees and putties towards her. There was a cacophony of hoots and whistling, cheering and shouting from all quarters as we met, and she was reaching, fumbling for something at her neck. She winkled a small silver chain out from beneath her nurse's uniform and showed me something there on the palm of her hand, right under her chin. A ring, a silver ring, with the head of Mr. Punch, the ring I'd given her when I asked her to be my wife. I held it in my fingertips, and it was as warm as her heart. Then I took her in my arms and kissed her. Whoa! Go on, Charlie! came the cries from all around us. When we finally broke off, she touched my face with her fingers, wonderingly. It is you, isn't it? For reply, I kissed her again, and we held one another so tightly I feared I might hurt her. The hooting and whistling went on, but I sensed there was some impatience creeping into it, just an undertone, and maybe a little jealousy, too. "'The show must go on,' I said, softly. "'Go on,' she said. "'I'm not going anywhere.'" Epilogue Shortly after that memorable evening, the German spring offensive reached Bethune, which was pretty much flattened by their artillery. Fortunately, I had moved on by that time, as Harry Lauder was so taken with my chaplain routine that he took me with him all the way to Calais and back to England too. It shouldn't really have been possible, but such was Lauder's superhuman contribution to the war effort that the army would refuse him nothing. Fortunately, too, the 33rd Casualty Clearing Station withdrew from Bethune ahead of the worst of the shelling, and Tilly found herself back in England shortly after that. Such a reunion we had then, and I finally saw again my little lad, my Wallace, five years old now and bright as a button. 
had been such a small part of his young life, and it was hardly surprising that he looked a little bewildered at the hugs he was getting from the strange man who had come to call. Then I had a moment's inspiration, and said, "'Who wants a chin pie?' and from somewhere in the recesses of his young memory he suddenly recalled the game he had once loved so much, and ran away screaming in delighted terror. It seemed the Lovett Highlander, McTavish, was no longer on the scene. Indeed, Tilly told me she'd broken with him as soon as they'd returned from Cambridge to Skegness, the very day she'd learned that I had survived the Lusitania disaster. He sounded a decent enough sort, and had understood. The peculiar tone of her letter to me, she explained later, she had been feeling such guilt for a year and a half, thinking that I had perished while travelling to reach her, that she wanted to be sure to give me no encouragement to try again. I suppose that I could hardly have devised a more complete demonstration of my having outgrown my rivalry with Chaplin than allowing him to continue unmolested whilst I myself was carted off to the Western Front, but such was the unfettered joy of our reunion that Tilly never even mentioned that concern again. By the time of the armistice, the three of us had set up house in London, close to Elephant and Castle, and had begun to forge ourselves a new career back in the halls. Wallace was a stage-struck little imp, and it wasn't long before we were billed as the Dandos, featuring Little Dando. Fatherhood and the war combined to put things into a different perspective for me. How could I have let Chaplin's success get to me so much? I read of his unhappy marital adventures with much younger women, looked over at Tilly, and thought there was no way I would ever swap my life for his. Ultimately, I came to view that whole period with a kind of mellow detachment, and felt sure that that near insanity, that chaplinoia, was a thing of the past. Mind you, if Stan and Babe were ever to become massively successful, then I might just lose it altogether. Well, that's the end of the Arthur Dando trilogy, and if you've made it this far, well done you, that's what I say. Um, before we, we disappear into the uh, podcast sunset, I'd like to um, thank Mark Augustine, the, who's produced and edited all of these um, episodes, taken out all the fluffs and farts and stomach rumbles and uh, bits where the washing machine got too lively. Um, and also I'd like to thank um, Dave Cribb, our friend at Great Big Owl, for facilitating this whole process. Um, it would be nice to think there'd be more Arthur Dando. I've got an idea for one, but it'll be quite a while yet. Um, uh, but look for it, ultimately, in all good bookshops, but it'll have to be a fucking good bookshop for you to find it. All right, thank you very much. Goodbye. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. <laughs>